pray with me, Father? You're our God. And we come to seek you. We pray that you would speak to us. And in your speaking, that your word would accomplish its purpose. We pray its purpose bring to bring grace to us, to bring strength to us, to bring power to us to live. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you may be seated. Turn please to Joshua and chapter 8. Joshua chapter 8, please. I want to read verses 30 to 35. Hear the word of God. At that time, uh, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal. And just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar uh, of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native born with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded to Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Now, when I come to this passage, I ask the same two questions that I ask when I come to any narrative literature, any piece of history that we read in the scripture. There are various kinds of literature in the scripture. There's poetry and there's prophecy and there's gospel and there's epistle and there's didactic kind of teaching. But when we come to an event like this, I I simply ask two questions. One is, what's the scene? And two is, what's it mean? Okay? The first is, what's the scene? The second is, what's what, what does it really mean? Now, some scenes, quite frankly, in the Bible, don't tell us much. They don't really mean much. We read them in their history and they're, they're tying things together or just reporting something that happened. But this is a scene that I think has a, a meaning uh, for us. I mean, capture what's taking place here. Uh, the Israelites have crossed the Jordan, obviously. Uh, they entered into the land at a particular point in time that upon entering the land, you remember all the men were circumcised and therefore identified with the covenant of God, the promises of God. They, they, they administered and received the Passover meal so that they could say, we know why we're spared. It's because another has died in our place. And then in that commitment, in that consecration to God, uh, he took them to the city of Jericho where they won a great battle. But then they went to Ai where they were defeated because of sin uh, in the camp, sin amongst them, but Achan, and they dealt with that sin. Then they went to Ai a second time and, and were victorious. And Ai at this point in time lies in a heap of rubble and the king lies under a heap of stones, the king of Ai. So here's where they find themselves. Now God then instructs them, Mo, uh, Joshua knows to go up 
north of Ai, about 30 miles straight north uh, to uh, a city, a place called Shechem. And if you're in Shechem looking to the north and then you look west, you will see to the north of you a mount called Ebal. And then if you look to the south, you'll see a mount called Gerizim. From peak to peak, it's about a mile and a half. Uh, At the base of each mountain is about a quarter of a mile. And so you can just see it rise up in front of you. This valley, these two mountains on either side, one a touch taller than the other, but no significance, I suspect, there. So that's where we find the Israelites at this point in time. Now, you may ask the question, why? I mean, why do they go there? Of all places, you'd think that given that their military and their spiritual strength has been revitalized, that they just keep plowing through the land. They didn't go find another city to conquer, another piece of ground to take. Why is it they go up there, and, and they're not fighting at all, but, but they, f- in fact, stop, and they seem to stop to worship, stop to consider God, stop to hear his law, stop to hear the blessings and curses. You may wonder why they do that. Well, perhaps it's because Shechem was a very important place in their lives. That was the very place that God took Abraham as he first met him and said, this land will be yours. And it's in Shechem, that area, that Abraham built the first altar to God. But it's also because Moses had instructed Joshua to do that. And you remember that that, that Moses had, uh, that God had told Joshua to obey every point of the law. And if he did, if he meditated upon and he did it, then he'd have success. And so, really, you should be reading along with Joshua the book of Deuteronomy. Because what you'll find is that Joshua's just doing everything that Moses said to do there. He's doing exactly what he was commanded. He's following along. For instance, in Deuteronomy and chapter 11 and verse 29, uh, Moses writes this. He says, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Are they not beyond the Jordan west of the road, toward the going down of the sun in the land of the Canaanites who live in the Arabah, opposite Gilgal, beside the Oak of Morah? Now, directions in those days were a little less precise, it seems to me. (laughs) But anyway, um, verse 31. For you are to cross over the Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And when you possess it and live in it, you shall be careful to do all the statutes and the rules that I'm setting before you today. Now, in that moment, Moses was with the people. And what he was doing with the people was pronouncing upon them the covenant of God and reading to them the blessings and curses that come. Blessings if they obey, curses if they're unfaithful to the covenant. And then he says, when you get into the new land, the land of promise, I want you to do the same thing. And here's the spot I want you to do it. And so that's the spot that Joshua took the people. And he didn't just take the fighting men. He took all the people with him. So they must have come from Gilgal. Perhaps the ones who were still east of the Jordan came as well. All the people came, the women, the children, uh, the sojourners, the ones who they sort of picked up along the way, uh, plus the fighting men, plus the elders. Everybody gathered at Shechem at the base then of of these mountains. And they were to read, as we know, the blessings and and curses. So the, the scene is this. The scene is here they are. The Ark of the Covenant is, is, is between, in the valley, between the two mountains. Uh, and we know from 
Deuteronomy 27 and 28, which delineates that. In fact, turn to that very quickly, just so you'll see that. Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 1. Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep the whole commandment that I command you today, and on the day you cross over the Jordan to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. And you shall write on them all the words of this law when you cross over and enter to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. And when you've crossed over the Jordan, you shall set up these stones concerning which I command you today on Mount Ebo, and you shall plaster them with plaster. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall wield no iron tool on them. You shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones, and you shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. And you shall sacrifice peace offerings and shall eat there, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, and you shall write on the stones all the words of this law very plainly. So here they are. And if we went on to read, you'd realize that that what happens is that they divide the the tribes six and six. And they put six of the tribes, all the people from those tribes, on Mount Gerizim to the south. And they put six of those tribes on Mount Ebal to the north. And some Levites are in the middle with the Ark of God, with the Ark of the Covenants. And they're to take on Mount Ebal, they're to take uh, some stones uncut, for whatever reason, uncut and build an altar there. So they're going to make sacrifices, burnt offerings and peace offerings there, right on Mount Ebal. And they're to take some other stones and plaster them over so they can write on them. So it's easy to write on them. And they're to write the law of God on those stones. And then, if we pro- progress down in chapters 27 and 28, you'll realize that you to read the blessings and the curses. For instance, uh, in chapter, uh, uh, chapter 27 and uh, verse 15, they begin to read, Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by hands of a craftsman, and sets it up in secret, and all the people shall answer and say, Amen. So you get this sense that the curses are being read, and after a curse is read, all the people uh, on Mount Ebal, from where the curses are going to be read, say amen. And then later they read the blessings, and all they read the blessings from Mount Gerizim. And all the people there say amen to the blessings. And so you get this sort of antiphonal thing going back and forth probably. And and you have a perfect little natural amphitheater for all of this to take place. So here they are. The curses and the blessings are being read. The curses from Mount Ebal. The blessings from Mount Gerizim. And the people are saying, yes, that's right and true. If we obey God, these blessings shall be ours. If we're unfaithful to the covenant, these curses shall be for us befall us, and that's right, and that's true. And then in the midst of all of this, sometime, either before or after, Joshua reads the whole law, whether it be the Ten Commandments, whether it be chapters 27 and 28 of Deuteronomy, whatever, maybe all of Deuteronomy, for all we know, he reads the whole law to them in the midst of that valley while the people are standing probably up those mountains. Now, in the midst of all that, uh, there's some smoke. There's some smoke that's going up from the altar on Mount Ebal, the Mount of Curses. So get that scene in your mind. You can see the smoke. You can see the people. You can hear the law read. 
You can hear their affirmation of the law, their affirmation of the blessings and curses. And so then we ask the question, what's that all mean? I mean, here they are doing all of this. What does that really mean? Why have they been commanded uh, to do this? First this, I think. That it really does show that the battles that they're fighting are not military battles at all. But they're spiritual battles. And if they're going to be in those battles and if they're going to continue on in those battles, they have to understand that victory or defeat is not on the basis of their military prowess, not on the basis of their political strength, but it's on the basis of their spiritual strength. It's on, their, on the basis of their relationship with God. And so God says in the middle of all of this, I want you to stop from your battles and I want you to focus your attention upon me. It's easy to see our enemies and it's easy to see that they're either stronger or weaker. And it's easy to see if they're stronger than us, that, oh man, we're going to be defeated and and not have courage to go on. It's easy to see that if they're weaker than us, oh, then we don't really need God. We can depend upon ourselves. But God says, I want you to focus upon me. I want you to focus your attention upon me. So they stop in the middle of their battles and they worship in essence. And they hear the law of God. And they hear God's covenant uh, come being read uh, before them. And they get this sense that if you obey God, then he is with you and you will be blessed. Listen to some of the blessings that are promised uh, to them. Chapter 28 of Deuteronomy. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle and the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall uh, be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. And he goes on to say that your enemies will fall before you and all of that. Whatever blessing you can imagine, material or otherwise, would be theirs. So all those blessings are being read from that southern mount, from Mount Gerizim. Then verse 15, the curses are essentially exactly the opposite. If you're not faithful to God, he said, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, Or be careful to do all his commandments and statutes that I command you today. And all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall be in the field and cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your room and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall be you when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out and the enemies will overtake you and your children will be this and that and the other thing. All of this in a very solemn, let's get down to business kind of way. But that's not all that was being said. Because there was smoke coming up from Mount Gerizim. I'm sorry, from Mount Ebal. And the amazing thing is that the altar was built not on the mountain of blessing, but on the mountain of cursing. Because the question always is, how do we get from the curses to the blessings? <laughs> how do we escape the curses and come to the blessings? And the answer, of course, is obey God perfectly. Do all of this. Be faithful to him. And we hear that and we go, we're sunk. How are we going to do that? In fact, I'm already sunk because I already haven't done that. And then the smoke we see. 
Because up from the altar are burnt offerings and peace offerings. Turn to Leviticus in chapter 1. You already know this from a year or two ago when I preached through Leviticus chapter 1. But Leviticus chapter 1 outlines the burnt offering. Notice verse 3. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron and the priests shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the heads of the fats on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs shall be washed. He shall wash with water. And the priests shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now that's a very technical way, and you can go on to get other kinds of burnt offerings in this passage. very technical way a burnt offering is done when the tabernacle exists and all of that. But this is a special altar. Uncut stones on the Mount of Ebal, the Mount of Cursings. But no doubt similar. No doubt the same understanding that an animal would be brought Animals, no doubt, would be brought over the course of their time of worship and would be, would be brought. And, and the reason they're brought is because there's an identification between the animal and the worshiper. In this case, there's hands laid on the animal in a sense to say, this animal represents me. Why? Because we know that God requires holiness, that God requires purity to be in his presence. Since we're impure in his grace in this time period, he was willing to accept an unblemished bull. Unblemished meaning there was no reason for this bull to die. It had no defect, no reason to get rid of it. It was a perfectly good bull. And it was a perfect, perfectly good bull. No uh, blemishes at all. No reason for it to die. The only reason for it to die was because it was devoted wholly to God and his purpose, and his use. And so a, purpose, a person comes with this bull and says, I'm not holy, God will accept this in my place. And so then the, the, the worshiper, or perhaps the pre- priest on this particular day about which we're reading on Mount Ebal, cuts the throat of this thing, gathers the, the blood and sprinkles it on the altar. In a sense, people seeing that smoke, hearing those curses would think, I've been disobedient I should die. But the smoke tells me another has died in my place. The blessings are mine. But that's not all that happens in the burnt offering. What happens next is that the whole bull is consumed on the altar. Nothing is taken. Nothing is eaten by human beings. It's a food offering, but it's a food offering to God. It's all consumed. It, 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 it ends in ashes. Nothing really is left of this thing. It's completely and wholly consecrated, set apart, set aside for the purpose of God. It gives itself, if you will. It's taken wholly for God's use. 
And so the worshiper sees that smoke and he's thinking, I deserve to die. I deserve these curses. Another has taken the curse for me. Now, how shall I live? What shall be the course of my life? And the answer is, the course of your life should be wholly consecrated to God. It should belong to Him. It should be spent for Him. It should be consumed in His service. And the worshipers would realize that. And so then I leave my disobedience, my unfaithfulness, and I go to live faithful unto God. But that's not the only smoke that comes up from the altar. There's smoke that comes up too from the peace offering. We won't read about that. We could in Leviticus chapter 3. Similar animal being brought as a representative of people unto God. But the peace offering is different. It comes after the burnt offering, after atonement has been made for sin. But the peace offering then comes to say, there is now peace. There's now peace between God and us. And there's now peace among us. And the way that that's symbolized is that not all of this offering is consumed. Only some of it. In fact, some of it's burnt on the altar, thus goes to God. Some of it is given to the priests. And then the rest of it is for the people to eat. And so everyone, in a sense, is eating together. God's eating with us. The priests are eating. The people are eating. Everybody's eating from this one sacrifice. And only people who are in peace can eat together. Only people who are in peace can share this meal together. And so the smoke going up and then the feast that follows says there is peace. Peace between us and God because of the burnt offering that atoned for our sins. I deserve the curses. I don't get them. I get the blessings. And now how am I to live? In peace with God. and peace with each other. Faithful to God. Of course, we see in all of this, our Lord Jesus, we, we, we see that, that He is uh, the one who's made sacrifice for our sins. He's the one who is our peace. The scripture says that now that we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How did that peace come? With God. It came through Christ. That's what we believe. That's the gospel. It came by way of his atoning sacrifice. We don't smell smoke. We don't look at smoke. We don't bring animals. All has been brought. We look to the cross. We say, yes, upon that cross, my curse was taken that I might now live. That's the real question. How is it that we're now to live? Turn to Galatians and chapter 2 and verse 20. Galatians 2 and verse 20. Many of you know this verse, I suspect, from memorizing it. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the flesh. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Again, that's the identification. I'm identified with Christ so much so that the scripture can say that when he died, I died. When he rose, 
I rose. So now, how am I to live? I'm to live by faith in Him, trusting Him. Turn to 2 Corinthians in chapter 5 and verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. If you ask the question, why did Christ die? You can come up with a number of right answers. That is just depending on the focus or the perspective that you're taking, the context in which you're answering that question. But one of the answers would be this. Christ died so that we might live for him. When he died, we died. What died in us? The thing that died in us when he died was certainly guilt for our sin. But it was also the dominion of sin was broken so that we might live for him. Turn to Romans in chapter 8 and verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Forgiven of our sins, atonement has happened. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So Jesus did for us, by obeying the law, what we could not do. Then, verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh, that is, according to our sinful inclinations, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, For it doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So when we hear the curses, we know we're sunk. When we hear the blessings, we know we're sunk. Because we can't do that. But we see the smoke. We see the cross. And we say, oh, okay. Someone took the curse from me. Then I might be blessed. Verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact... The Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your immortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we're debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. How are we to live? Smelling the smoke, seeing the cross, knowing its reality. We're to live by the Spirit, faith in Christ, putting to death those things which are cursed. That we might live in the blessing of God.
Turn to Colossians in chapter 3. I can do this all day, I won't. Verse 1. If then you've been raised with Christ, all right, that identification, he died, we died, he rose, he rose. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. On account of these is the curse, you see. So he says, I want you to put that to death. And you say, but, but I can't. He said, but smell the smoke, but see the cross. Realize the Spirit of God is with you. And by the Spirit of God, put these things to death. Turn away from them. Is it easy? No. That's why he didn't use the metaphor, take a picnic lunch and enjoy the day while you're getting rid of your sin. He says, put it to death. That doesn't conjure up easy images. That's messy and bloody and violent, spiritually speaking. You see, these things have been with me my whole life. I understand that. So does Paul. So does the Holy Spirit. So he says, kill them, put them to death. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. So he says, do it. That's how you're to live. Jesus, you know, puts it like this. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Very, very familiar words to us. And Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Again, a violent image. Not an easy image. Not a picnic lunch image. Not a stroll in the park image. Not a nice day image. But a cross. An instrument of death. An instrument of execution. And he says, this is how you're to now live. Put all that from Mount Ebal that results in curses in your experience to death. Objectively speaking, Christ has done that. Subjectively experiencing, do it. Forever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Put it into practice. Do it. Matthew chapter 7, last one here. Verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it didn't fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And when the rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. He says, listen, you'll be blessed if you do what I say. We've been saved so that we could put to death the old 
and live in newness of life and receive the blessing of God. What's that? Turn to John chapter 14 and verse 21. Jesus says this, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. The blessing of obedience is seeing Jesus. Not with these eyes, but knowing him. And seeing his character be built within us. To be able to say, that's the presence of God in me. There's nothing like that. There's nothing that can compare to that. So hear the word of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket and put it on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass Away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it's all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard that it was said to those of old that you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remembers that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put into prison. Truly I say to you, you'll never get out until you've paid the last penny. 
You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. 
And when you fast, you not look gloomy like the hypocrites for. They disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward in full. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour of span to his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. For which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. 
A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, and thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I would declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who put his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall. And you say, I must be cursed. And I say, smell the smoke. Look to the cross. That's our hope that one has taken the curse. But now that one has taken the curse, how shall we live? I pray we can give our amen to the words of Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we hear it. I thank you that Jesus has taken the curse for us, that we may now live. And I pray that we turn away from all that displeases you and by the Spirit put to death those things in us contrary to the character of Christ. And that we live giving amen to your covenants, to your commands, to your wisdom, that we might live and know your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand. <clears throat> For the benediction, the response to the benediction this morning is Jesus is Lord... I will follow him. Right? That's your amen. That's your way of reaffirming the covenant. That's your way of re-upping in your life with Christ. Receive this as God's benediction now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy. Eternally wise God and Savior Jesus Christ, whom be glory, dominion, majesty, and power, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Jesus is Lord. I will follow him.